welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Nashville, Tennessee. Last week we considered the first exercise of the Satipatthana, examination of breath, the first of a series of mindful contemplations of body. Today, I would like to look at the second body exercise, which has to do with posture. We will also continue to deepen our understanding of internal analysis at the heart of the Satipatthana. Let's continue our reading of the Satipatthana Sutta with the simple exercise on postures. Again, bhikkhus, when walking... A bhikkhu understands, I am walking. When standing, he understands, I am standing. When sitting, he understands, I am sitting. When lying down, he understands, I am lying down. Or he understands accordingly, however his body is disposed. Recall that the breath contemplation calls for sitting in the familiar cross-legged meditation posture. This contemplation generalizes to four basic postures and to all the variations thereof, various positionings of the hands, legs, fingers, etc. And so we presume it is practiced intermittently throughout the day. Posture provides also one of the easiest contemplations We, as virtually all other animals, presumably, have a highly developed natural sense of the spatial position and also motion of our bodies as a whole. This sense is called proprioception or kinesthesia in psychology. And through this sense, we comprehend or almost visualize our full bodily posture all at once a sense of the outer extent and configuration of our bodies. This sense has a clear function in that it allows us to map our sense of posture against what is going on in the environment in order to recognize possible dangers and such things and necessary adjustments. For snakes, for instance, it probably keeps them from eating their own tails. We talk about the five senses, or in Buddhism, the six senses, but actually we have many senses that monitor various aspects of our own bodies and its functions. We have a sense of balance attributed to the inner ear. We also have a sense of hunger or thirst, or their opposite, satiation. Another sense tells us when we are oxygen-deprived. Proprioception is another sense attributed not to a single organ, but to a complex system of neural feedback from joints and tendons to cerebral analysis. But the main point is that it is automatic, requiring no conscious effort. It's well known that the breath can serve as an ever-present meditation object that we can return to easily to still the mind or provide continuity of attention. The breath is given special attention in many yogic meditation techniques, as well as Buddhist anapanasati, mindfulness of breath, 
as a specialized technique. The posture is likewise effective in this role. In traditional Japanese Soto Zen, for instance, in the meditation instructions of Dogen Zenji, the posture is at the core of the meditation technique, and the breath is not even mentioned. An interesting thing you might discover in this exercise is that posture, as we sense it, is simpler than a spatial map of the surface of the skin. At least I've noticed this in my meditation. You can check it out for yourself. Where skin touches skin, as in sitting cross-legged or bringing the hands together, the areas of contact become folded into the inside of the posture. If you roll yourself in a ball, your posture is very ball-like. It's not a convoluted surface. If you are sitting in meditation posture, your hands are probably touching and a tactile sensation is present where they touch. But can you tell which hand feels the sensation? I can't seem to locate the sensation in one hand or the other, but only at a particular area relative to the space defined as within my simplified posture, where the hands happen to come together. See if you experience the same thing as you let your mind settle into your posture. The contemplation of postures continues with the exact same refrain found in the breath exercise. Recall that this refrain describes the series of contemplations I'm calling internal analysis. Let's focus today on three contemplations described at the beginning of this refrain. In this way, he abides contemplating the body in the body internally, or he abides contemplating the body in the body externally, or he abides contemplating the body in the body both internally and externally. I should warn that there is a lack of consensus among scholars and teachers not about what internally means, but about what externally means here. I'll advocate in these talks a particular interpretation that we will see make sense in terms of the language of the Satipatthana, in terms of setting up or framing the remaining contemplations of the refrain, and also it makes sense in terms of more general principles of Dharma, that relate to the insubstantiality or unreliability and cognitive constructiveness of the world. A major theme in understanding, for instance, independent co-arising. I hope to review the alternative interpretations of externally in the course of these talks. Specifically, I think Everyone agrees that contemplation of breath or posture or bodily actions, etc., internally is simply to follow the instructions that precede the refrain with regard to our own breath, posture, etc. That's no problem. I argue that to contemplate externally is even simpler. For posture or for breath, or for all of the body exercises, it is to be aware of the body itself as a whole, 
just as the instruction says, the body in the body, as something substantial that has a presence in the outer world and that we can discuss in worldly terms. For instance, as something beautiful or ugly, large or small, in danger of injury, etc. The trick here, though, is to acknowledge the body as a substantial thing in itself, but without thinking about it in worldly terms, that is, without getting caught in any of the extraneous things we might say about the body, but leaving the contemplation at the bare presumption that the body exists as something substantial in the world. There is a body. This is what is meant by the body in the body. In fact, our worldly notions about the body would be distractions from the practice of the satipatthana, from the continuity of attention, and from the concentration we expect to attain. Our worldly contemplation of the external body would entangle us in one hindrance or another. External contemplation, in the technical sense, leaves us little to contemplate it, really functions to put a cap or set a limit on internal analysis. This makes external contemplation very simple, but also very difficult, because we must constrain the scope of the contemplation down to the bare minimum. We must resist the natural human tendency to proliferate into worldly affairs, which is opposed to meditation or contemplation. The third contemplation, both internally and externally, attempts to connect the internal and external contemplations by putting them side by side. We have a body and we have a posture. How do we know the substantial self exists? A primary source of evidence is the existence of a substantial body. How do we know a substantial body exists? Well, there are various sources of evidence. One of them is the posture. Can you have a posture without a body or a body without a posture? These questions belong to the contemplation of body both internally and externally. We want to ask what evidence the posture provides for the existence of the substantial body. Is this evidence definitive, suggestive, or maybe entirely irrelevant? The result of the body exercises is to question whether the body or the self exists in any substantial way. We certainly presume the substantial existence of a body, at least most of us do, and we likewise presume the existence of a self. Sensing our posture feels like seeing the body or the self behind it. After all, it's the body that has the posture or assumes the posture, isn't it? But are our presumptions well-founded or based on insufficient evidence combined with faulty cognition? In practice, we don't need to turn this into an intellectual exercise. We simply sit or stand or whatever with the posture and sit or stand with the body side by side, 
or try to see one with or without the other. We may discover after having settled into the posture or into the breath for a long time that we cannot find the body, that it seems like an abstraction or an empty concept. The body as a substantial whole seems to vanish. This is good. This is actually what we're aiming for. In the end, we cannot find it at all. We also cannot find the self. Actually, there is an analogy for this that might be intellectually closer at hand. Consider a country. I reside in the USA, but Lithuania, Indonesia, or Thailand work just as well. We presume the USA exists as a substantial object. What is the evidence for this presumption? It has an economy. It has borders and territory. It can print money, go to war, tax imports, and tax citizens. It has a population within its borders or as official citizens who may even live overseas. If the country were a body, the economy would be the breath, the borders that define the territory, its posture, printing money, declaring war, etc., its bodily actions its states and governing bodies, its organs, its population, its elements, and its history can enter into successive stages of decay, just like the body. We think of a country as substantial and reliable, but every piece of evidence for its existence is changeable and impermanent. In what sense does it exist? This is where the country becomes more intellectually tractable than the body. And the reason is that the country is a social construct, a social institution, a product of social cognition and social agreement. Where did the country come from? It was founded, it started as an idea in the set of the founding fathers, as we call them in the USA. They declared the existence of the USA, and that was sufficient for it to exist. It could not have boundaries or a population. It could not print money and the rest until it existed. But its existence was simply declared. It was totally made up. Yet we presume it exists in a substantial way. This is easiest to see in the case of social institutions. The existence of football or money is exactly the same. What is the evidence for money? Scraps of paper with markings, bank transactions. But money is made up. The Federal Reserve makes new money simply by typing numbers into a computer. Yet for many people, football and money are the most substantial things there are in the whole world. The body, the self, and everything else we presume to exist substantially is no different. They are also made up. But in these cases, our presumptions about them are hidden, at least partly, in private cognition rather than social cognition where they're quite public. Why do we care about all of this as Buddhists? Because When we presume the existence of something substantial, we become really stupid. 
So, countries are made up. That does not stop us from blaming another country for such and such, needing to defend our own country, and pretty soon the first country is bombing the second country, and the second country is forced to bomb the first country in retaliation to be made to suffer. As if countries were substantial things, with agency, blame, good and evil intentions, and not something just made up. Meanwhile, it is people who are being bombed and all too human suffering that results. Presuming bodies and selves likewise lead to stupid consequences. To begin with, it leads to human suffering, to greed, hatred, and delusion, to being stuck in the soap opera of samsara. Let me make a subtle point here before we get carried away. We cannot really survive without presuming the existence of substantial things that are made up. The fact is that cognition requires that we establish fixed points in our world of experience, which is what we are doing when we give things substantial existence. Cognition requires this in order to have any degree of comprehension of the world at all. The alternative is a combinatorial explosion of possible interpretations of the world. By insisting on these fixed points, by presuming substantial things, we create localized areas of manageable cognition and have at least some basis for understanding our world, without which we would be incapable of acting in any reasonable way whatever. Our experience of the world is very faulty. The problem is really that we are convinced that it is accurate, that our fixed points really exist in a substantial way, that there really are substantial countries, substantial bodies, and substantial selves. When we recognize the insubstantiality of what we presume, we have the choice of experiencing otherwise in a more wholesome and beneficial way, basically to let go of what we presume at will. The Buddha had a low regard for presumptions. Here's what he said about them. Presumption is a disease. Presumption is a tumor. Presumption is a dart. By overcoming all presumptions, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace, and the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die, he is not shaken, and does not yearn, for there is nothing present in him by which he might be born. Internal analysis is the fundamental means by which we let go of or at least loosen our confidence in our presumptions. It does this by asking us to witness how we construct the world cognitively. In particular, we learn that experiencing things as real is different from experiencing real things. Once we realize this, we can presume otherwise, and therefore we can experience the world otherwise and in fact in a more 
beneficial way, we can empty the world of things that we formerly rigidly presumed, then craved, then appropriated as me and mine to our great detriment and to the detriment of those around us. Once we begin to question our presumption of a body as substantial and relatively permanent, we can go on to notice that all of the evidence for the body is insubstantial and impermanent. We notice this about countries as well. Specifically, the evidence of posture consists of the momentary experience of a posture, a series of instances of proprioception, events of bodily awareness that come and go by their very nature. If we identify the body with posture, how can the body be substantial and the posture impermanent? The refrain continues the internal analysis as follows. Or else he abides contemplating in the body its nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. We will continue exploring this next week along with the contemplation of bodily actions.